Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. We will continue in our teaching series in the book of Genesis on origins. So at this time, we will have the reading of our scripture by Cynthia Ease. As she's coming, I'm going to ask all that can and will to please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading today is Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. Well, Friday coming up is Valentine's Day. You're welcome if you uh, needed a reminder of that. See... Some brothers furiously writing themselves a memo uh, to remember that fact. If uh, if you're approaching this Valentine's Day with some mixed emotions, uh, the El Paso Zoo is here to help you. They have uh, taken an interesting approach to the holiday. You can have the El Paso Zoo name a cockroach after your ex, and they will feed it to a meerkat on Valentine's Day. I don't have the phone number, but you can call them if that interests you. (laughs) To say that we have complicated emotions uh, around Valentine's Day is perhaps an understatement. I don't know how you feel about Valentine's Day. Maybe you just roll your eyes at the Hallmark-produced schmaltz of it all. Maybe uh, you're approaching this Valentine's Day with eager anticipation. I don't know, maybe for some of y'all, that's, that's something that you're looking forward to. Maybe you're in a new, young relationship, you're excited uh, to celebrate it together. Maybe it's your first Valentine's Day as husband and wife. Maybe perhaps you've been in a marriage for a very long time, and there's a comfort and a joy in some of the traditions that you have around Valentine's Day. However, maybe you're approaching Valentine's Day with some anxiety or even dread. Maybe you're single 
uh, and facing a day when the whole world is marketed to convincing you uh, that this is the biggest problem in your life, uh, where all of society conspires to make you feel your singleness uh, deeply. Perhaps you're in the midst of a difficult and hard place in your marriage, and it's with a great deal of anxiety when you think about going out to dinner and sitting across from one another and trying to make conversation and figure out how to ignore what's going on between you. Maybe for that reason, Valentine's Day is a hard place. Whatever the reason, the fact is that romance, romantic love, touches our hearts in a deep way, right? We are wired in such a way that uh, the way that we relate to others in romance, in dating, and in marriage uh, touches our hearts as few other things do. Probably, you could, if we were to sit down and you were to tell me your life story, Probably some of the deepest hurts have occurred in this area. Betrayals that you felt, the grieves, uh, the losses that you've grieved, the estrangement that you felt growing in where it should have been only intimacy. And probably also, in addition to your deepest grief, some of your highest joys are in this area. First kisses and first dates and weddings and welcoming children into the world and celebrating anniversaries. Right, both for good and for ill, our hearts are connected in a deep way to love and to romance. And here, uh, just in the second chapter of the Bible, we notice a significant change uh, in the way that uh, the book is written. Because right here in Genesis chapter 2, uh, we have the first poetic section of the Bible. So first, if you're looking in your Bible, these verses starting in uh, starting in verse 23 are likely set apart. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Right, this is a poem. Right here, two chapters into a book uh, that is God's self-revelation, His revelation of Himself to His people. And here we have a love song in the second chapter. Much of the rest of the Old Testament and stretching into the New is composed of poetry. All of the Psalms is poetry. We have a whole book, the Song of Songs, that's a love poem that by and large we don't know what to do with. The scriptures start with a wedding here in the second chapter and they end with a wedding. It ends in the book of Revelation, the marriage of Jesus and the church. So it starts with the union of Adam and Eve, ends with the union of Christ, the second Adam, and the true bride, his people. By bookending the Bible in this way, I believe God wants us to see that you cannot understand who he is and what he's doing in the world apart from an understanding of romance, apart from an understanding of a, of a groom seeking after a bride. In every taste of romance that we have in this life, every taste of marriage, whether it be bitter or sweet, is made to point us towards that larger story, towards the wedding, the love, the union that we are made for. The Bible begins and ends with a wedding. In your relationship with God, your uh, relationship with your spouse if you have one, your relationship with, uh, with people that you may date, all of it finds its deepest meaning in that. Now, this means a couple of things for us. 
It means, first of all, that your marriage is not ultimate in your life, right? Marriage uh, in this life is not the most important thing about you, right? This is incredibly liberating when you're single, for those of us who are single. It means that in a world, especially at Valentine's Day, but all the time, that has a tendency to tell you that your life is, it does find its meaning in your romantic fulfillment. That it finds its meaning in you finding the one who's going to be the plus to your minus, the yin to your yang, the bird to your bees, right? That, it, that, that finding that perfect union is going to be what solves your life. That finally all the pieces are going to fit in the puzzle and you're going to go, ah, love. Well, if marriage isn't ultimate, then it means that your life is not fundamentally defined by your marriage or your singleness, your divorce or your marriage, right? That there is something bigger than marriage. But the fact that marriage plays such a huge role in the biblical story means that ultimately marriage, not your marriage, not the actual marriage that you may or may not find yourself in, but marriage is ultimate, right? That there is a deep longing in each and every one of our hearts that longs to be loved, that longs to know that we are both known fully and deeply as we are, and yet loved to the utmost, right? The last verses of Genesis 2 say, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Right? There's something in us, something that we were made for, that was made for that experience of oneness, of union and communion, and that was made for that description of being naked without shame. Right? Now, being naked, what is that all about? That means, you know, I don't have time to tell you all that that's about, but uh, to, to be naked means to be absolutely and utterly vulnerable. Right? It means to be unhidden. It means to be seen uh, as you really are without the benefit of clothing or fig leaves or whatever the case may be to cover yourself. And most of us cannot imagine what it would be like to be that exposed, to be that seen, to be that vulnerable and not experience shame in some way, to not have the immediate desire to, to hide or to cover. And that's pointing to what we're made for. Beyond mere physical nakedness, but the, pointing, the, the point is, you're made to be seen as who you really are. The parts you like, the parts you don't like, the parts you're confident about, the parts you'd rather hide. And to know that you are loved, to know that you are delighted in, to know that you are the object of another's absolute affection and adoration. It's what we're made for. And marriage is really only possible in this world when you recognize that you're made for that and you will not get it in a marriage in this life, right? That means if you're single, there's not a perfect marriage out there that you're longing for that if you get it, you'll know what it feels like to be perfectly vulnerable and perfectly loved. And it means that in this life, in your marriages, you will have tension, right? You will have conflict. You will have shame you will have difficulty in coming together in that way because you are made for one who loves you without sin or selfishness or self-regard, who loves you utterly and completely.
You know, it's interesting. Uh, being a pastor is weird in all kinds of ways. One of the unique beauties of being a pastor is that you get to stand with people on their wedding day. Right? There is no one who stands closer, usually, to a bride and a groom when they take their vows to one another than the pastor. Right? So you get to see the joy and the beauty. Right? Nobody ever looks better than they do on their wedding day. Right? You've been dieting for months. you got a tan. You look great. Woman's you know, picked out her dream dress. The guy's rented a tux at the mall. Um, and there they are together, and they're so full of joy. They're surrounded by the people they love. And every marriage launches with this incredible boost of optimism and joy. Unfortunately, as a pastor, you often also get invited into the darker places, uh, not just of weddings, but of marriages, right? You see what, sometimes of the very same couples, you see what began with flowers and love and smiles and what it can run, turn into with conflict and hurt and bitterness and betrayal. As a pastor, you're close to people as they begin their marriage. Oftentimes, you are walking with them as their marriages end, sadly. And usually, uh, it is somewhere it's rooted in a lack, um, an, over, an overinflated sense of our expectations for what our marriage will give us. That our marriage will ultimately, plus all of our minuses, meet all of our deepest needs. When in reality, marriage is brutal. Uh, marriage is war, not hopefully with your spouse, uh, although there are moments, but with your own selfishness, with your own pride, with your own sin, right? With your own independence, right? Some of us get married and we keep the secret agenda to stay deeply independent, right? It's a battle because we're sinners and because we're frail. And so if your marriage is a source of frustration for you, if it's a place uh, where you are feeling the emptiness of what you thought it would be and are now realizing that it's not. If you're single and longing to be married, or if you're married and wishing you were single, which is worse, know that you are not made with a longing that can be fulfilled by even the best marriage in this life. But you are made for a marriage uh, that's beyond this life. And so your marriage isn't ultimate. But... But your, your marriage is a participation in what is ultimate. Your marriage finds its meaning, its value, its dignity, and its beauty as a part of a larger story, right? It's not everything, but it's a part of a story that is everything. The love of God and his people, the love of Jesus and his church. It's a story that has its roots in creation here in Genesis 2. And it has its fulfillment at the marriage feast of the Lamb in Revelation. It's a story uh, that gives meaning to all of our stories. And we're going to look at a few elements of that story. First, it's a story of wonder. Your marriage, marriage in general, is about wonder. It's about glory. We've said that this is the first poem in the Bible. Adam, as he receives Eve, it's, 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 you know, it seems as though God walks Eve down the aisle. It says that God brought her to the man. And when he sees her, he bursts forth into song. He is amazed. He is filled with wonder, beholding the glory 
of one who was made for him. Imagine what it would be like to have never seen another human, right? To have never seen another person like you, right? God, if you ever, in reading this, I come to wonder, why does God notice that there's no helper for Adam? There's no, it's not good that he's alone. And then he parades all of the animals by him one after the other, essentially to give Adam an object lesson. And see, look, there are other creatures, there's other beings, but there is none like you. There is none made in my image. There's this great scene in uh, the adventure story, Robinson Crusoe. When Robinson believes himself, remember he's shipwrecked on an island, and he thinks he's utterly alone on the island until he sees a pair of footprints. Uh, and he realizes these aren't his footprints. There must be somebody else on the island. This is when he begins to realize that he's going to meet his friend Friday and he's not going to be utterly alone. And he is thrilled. He is overjoyed. He's consumed with the wonder that he's not alone. I thought I was alone and I'm not. And now imagine that feeling except for you'd never seen another person. You didn't know there was another thing with ten toes on its feet that walked on two legs. And all of a sudden, she's right there. She's in front of you one who's been made of the same stuff, matter and the breath of God, wonder, glory, worship. And really, this is uh, what our marriages are designed to give us, that marriage ought to introduce us to wonder, to the sense of who is this person that God has brought into my life? Now, wonder is hard to maintain in a marriage, right? It's hard after 10, 20, 30 more years to maintain a sense of wonder in your spouse, to continue to want to discover more of who God's made your spouse to be, right? Over time, I mean, we do this with our friends and coworkers, let alone our spouse. We get to a point where we go, you know what? I know what she's going to say. I know what he already thinks. I know what he likes before he tells me. It's hard to keep a sense of wonder, a sense of, man, I can't wait to discover what's next. I can't wait to discover more of who you've been made to be. C.S. Lewis makes the great, uh, the great observation in The Four Loves that the difference between romance and friendship is that friends are made to stand shoulder to shoulder, facing out at the world, right? Friendship begins with a sense of uh, you two, Right? You're also interested in this thing, this hobby, this project, this mission. And so friends stand shoulder to shoulder. And usually that's where romantic love too starts. Shared interests, shared projects, shared values. But Lewis says lovers don't stand shoulder to shoulder. They stand face to face. Right? They're not ever and always occupied with what's out there beyond each other. They turn towards each other. And their main occupation is what's going on in the other. Discovering more of one another, keeping their relationship uh, filled with wonder and unpredictability. Now, familiarity uh, is often the enemy of wonder in our marriages. I think there is something deeper as well, right? If the goal, as we learn here, is that a marriage should be marked in verse 25 by one who is by being both partners together naked and without shame. I do think shame is the enemy of wonder in our marriage. 
right? Shame is that part, and we know that it happens in all of our relationships. We all know that over time, you begin to see not only what's wonderful in your spouse, uh, but also what's weak, what's sinful, what's prideful, what's hard. And we get good over time at making our spouse feel shame for those things. There you go again. Doing that same old thing. Oh, yeah, you would, you would say that. You, know, you sound so much like your mother when you say that. Oh, you would do that. You're so, so lazy. You always do this. Right? Shame is the enemy of, of wonder in our marriages. Because shame teaches your spouse that they better start hiding pretty soon. Right? That they better learn to cover up uh, those parts of themselves. Because if they don't, you know how to attack them. But when you together fight against shame, and friends, grace is the antidote to shame. Grace is what sees us in our weakness, sees us in our poverty, sees us in our sin, and covers and loves in the midst of that. You can't, you will not be able to maintain wonder and glory and romance in a marriage where shame is operating. So we have to together learn to overcome our shame, to fight against those things in our spouse that make them feel ashamed, that make them feel like they have to hide, and to move towards each other. So it's a story of wonder. It's a story of loyalty and commitment. Verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage is about a loyalty. It's about a commitment to one another. What do we say in the vows? Forsaking all others. Right? That it is a principal loyalty in your life. This verse sets up the life and society of Israel in a really unique way. It, it was not uncommon in the ancient world for there to be societies uh, where the primary unit of solidarity was the multi-generational family, right? Where your primary loyalty was to your parents, to your mother, your father, your grandparents. And that the marriage, the new marriage was expected to be subsumed under that multi-generational family. And Israel was meant to be different than that. It was meant to be, very intentionally, you will leave your father and mother and become one flesh with your spouse. Now, this doesn't mean Right? This doesn't mean that adult children are free uh, from the commandment to honor your father and mother. Right? There is loyalty, there is love, there is, there is uh, the bonds of love that hold us up a generation or two generations in families. But those bonds of love never supersede the bond of love between husband and wife. Right? It's a reworking of the basic loyalties of your heart and of your life. To say that now this one, this man, this woman, is your primary family unit. Now, in, as influenced as it is uh, by the stories of the scriptures, Western culture largely has, kept in, has been modeled after that. If, you're not, if you don't come from a Western culture, or an American culture, I've walked and counseled several, uh, in this church and others, Asian members of our churches through the conflicting bounds of loyalty within Asian families. Right? Oftentimes, uh, Latino families have the same kind of thing in other cultures, where married couples can feel intense sets of expectations coming from one culture into another. But the scriptures show that even though we honor 
and care for and lay down our lives for our parents when appropriate. That it's always done in the context of the one flesh union of husband and wife. Now, what does this mean for us? That's where this gets tricky. What does it mean to make your marriage the primary relationship in your life? I think we can look at it from a distance and see when it's violated, right? We can all think about what it would be like to have, you know, we joke about it, right? The overbearing mother-in-law that's stopping by all the time, um, the overly enmeshed relationships with family members that are just always around. And sometimes it is kind of obvious from the outside. But oftentimes it's very, very subtle. And it has nothing to do many times with the current day relationship with our parents. Oftentimes it is about continuing to live as adults in our marriage out of the roles and stories and baggage that we incurred in our family of origin. Right? Many times we learn to play roles as children in our families that we unreflectively begin to bring into our marriages. Maybe it's the husband who can't hear his wife's expressions of need without hearing his mother's harsh demands. Maybe it's a wife who can't enter into any conflict or disagreement with her husband out of past trauma that she felt over her father's outbursts of rage. Maybe it's a son whose role in the family growing up was to cheer everyone up at all times and who now can't abide negative emotions or conflict in his marriage. Right? We learn things from our parents. We learn things in our families. Some of them really good, right? Some of them we want to hold on to. They've made us who we are. And others of them that if we don't learn how to acknowledge them and how to lay them down, we will bring into our marriage and it'll hold us back. I had a, a counseling professor who once told me uh, that we all as human beings are very, very skilled adapters, right? We learn how to live wherever we are. And so he said, you can imagine like you grew up underwater and you learn to live with scuba gear on, right? The fins and the, heavy, and the heavy tank and the breathing apparatus. And then you grow up and you start living on dry land. And yet many of the times, have you ever tried to walk on dry land with flippers? Or walk on dry land with a scuba tank on your back? We have to come to realize that what served us well at one phase of our lives, what served us well as children in our households, may not serve us well as adults in our marriages. And we have to learn to leave father and mother, to leave those old commitments and to learn how to enter into our marriages fully and wholly. Forsaking all others, to cling to one another as long as we both shall live. Right, this is why this level of commitment uh, is why we take vows in the first place in weddings. Right? You ever notice, if you ever pay attention to the vows, maybe that you've made or that you've heard others make in your wedding, there's a reason why the vows aren't simply saying, I love you. Right? The vows aren't, I love you and I'll continue to love you as long as you continue to look this way, uh, as long as you continue to uh, you know, meet my expectations uh, heading into this marriage. No, you make vows because you know that love will require commitment that the intimacy of marriage only grows in the soil of loyalty and commitment. So if you think about it, even in the beauty of a wedding day, you verbally acknowledge that it will not always be this way. It won't always be this pretty and this dressed up. 
And the vows of our marriage say, I will continue to love you when I find out who you really are. Right? I will, I will continue to love you when I see your bad days, when I see your selfishness. I will continue to love you and to press into that. Mike Mason, uh, in his wonderful little book, The Mystery of Marriage, says this. The impact of love may be felt as an exclamation, point, an exclamation mark, but the vows ask a question. How bright the sun, exclaims love, while the vows ask, how dark a night are you prepared to pass through? Love says, how bright the dawn. Vows ask, how dark a night are you willing to press through for love? Which of, co- which of course points us uh, to the marriage that we long for. It points us to the fact uh, that Jesus Christ, our groom, had to go through the darkest night, the darkest night imaginable, a night, a day spent on the cross where even the sun was turned to blackness and his father's face was hidden. Jesus, the son, left the right hand of his father to pursue his bride. So committed to his bride, which is in the the, the scriptures, the bride is us, the church. So committed was he to us that he left his father's side, endured the cross with all of its pain. Right, Adam, the first Adam, in order to give birth to the first Eve, only had to fall into a peaceful sleep. And God took her neatly out of his side. And he woke up and she was there. Jesus passed not into a peaceful sleep, but into an agonizing death on the cross. Because it was not good for the second Adam to be alone. And the second Eve came out of the second Adam's side. I think this is what John is getting at when he shows the, the centurion piercing the side of Christ on the cross. And blood and water flow out. That the church is born out of the side of the second Adam. And the waters of baptism and the blood of the cup we find our life coming out of the life of our our groom, costing him his very life. Jesus wanted to get married, and it cost him a cross. You should not expect that it will cost you any less. Love always has a cross. Love always entails commitment to the point of suffering. It always entails self Uh, sacrifice more than self-satisfaction. The pursuit uh, of your marriage, the pursuit of love will always lead to a kind of a death. And this uh, gives way, the commitment, to the intimacy that's created in marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. There's a death, and they shall become one flesh. This points us to the fact that intimacy grows in the garden, in the rich soil of commitment. It has to be protected and nurtured in order to flourish. These verses are the key, really, to the the picture that pervades the entirety of the Scriptures, which is that the physical union of sex is reserved for the whole life union of marriage uh, between a man and a woman. Right, that sex has its place in a vowed, bonded, committed marriage between a man and a woman. And I don't know if there is a crazier thing to believe in 2020 
Uh, it's easier for many of us to believe in the virgin birth and in the resurrection, that a, that a man sprung from the grave, than it is to believe that sexuality uh, is created to be enjoyed within the boundaries of a marriage between a man and a woman. And yet, this is uh, nearly universally the teaching of the Christian church. Uh, Lord knows how much the Christian church has fractured over the last 2,000 years. We are good at splitting and fighting. And yet, uh, Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant uh, Christians around the world have largely had a high degree of unity around this notion of a biblical sexual ethic of sex within the vows of marriage. Now, like with most things, there's what we believe, and then there's how we believe it, right? There's the doctrine that we profess, and then there's the culture and the behaviors and the ways that we aim at those doctrines. And in that, the Christian church has a, a whole lot of learning that we need to be doing, right? While there's been incredible unity in the core of the biblical sexual ethic, we have learned and are learning over time how that ethic has been applied at times with very, very harmful uh, results in people's lives, right? It's incredibly easy, and the church has often resulted to a posture of self-righteousness and shame when it comes to how we get people to live within this morality, right? We've seen, I think over the last several years, uh, more and more attention paid to the damage that's been done uh, through what's often called the, the purity culture of evangelicalism, a belief that, uh, that purity is so tied to virginity uh, that, to, uh, that to misstep at all in this area is to fall into a shame that you can't lose. It's been applied at times disproportionately to young girls than to young men in such a way, I mean... How unchristian is it to apply the word purity to anything other than the purity we inherit from Jesus Christ? Right? No, right? I mean, Paul goes at lengths to say, none of you are pure, not one, right? Not, not the woman who enters or the man who enters into their wedding as a virgin, not the one who takes a hundred journeys along the way to get there. Your purity is not a function of your behavior, of your morality. Your purity is, there's only one pure one in the entire Bible, and he has promised his purity to us. We've seen it uh, in the way, in the stories that we hear, is more and more uh, kids who grow up in the church and come to realize that their set of temptations and attractions uh, don't fit neatly into the man-woman uh, picture of Scripture, right? We've seen it in the kids who grow up dealing with uh, ultimately quitting the church, sometimes quitting faith altogether. We see it among the, in the incredibly tragically high suicide rate of kids, of LGBT kids who grow up in the church, right? So if one of the, you know, the options can't be abandoning 2,000 years of Christian orthodoxy about what we believe. But we have to learn a better way of handling how we believe, how we relate to those who experience their lives, who experience their sexual life, who experience their attractions in ways that cause them deep shame and deep hurt and deep pain. 
The Christians in the world have always, I think we live with this really, really bad idea that for most of Christian history, everybody agreed with Christians about sexuality. And it's just been like, I don't know, the last eight years that culture's changed and now we have to figure it out. Christians have always been a sexual minority in their community, right? The Christians of the ancient Greco-Roman world were looked at as prudish and close-minded by their neighbors. So we have to be careful about abandoning 2,000 years of received teaching because we think culture has changed and it's no longer plausible, right? It's never been plausible. It's always been hard. But we would be equally foolish to say, and we've always walked this out faithfully, and we've never hurt anybody in the way that we've done it. In a pluralistic world, we have to learn to hold our convictions with both humility and strength, grace and truth, clinging to what we believe while acknowledging the fact uh, that every single one of us is broken. Right? There is not a person in the room today, including the person standing behind the pulpit, uh, that is not a sexual sinner. Right? That is not broken uh, in our bodies and in our sexuality. All of us fall short of the glory of God in this way. All of us need to learn what it means to confess this truth about ourselves, to not pretend that the church is the place where we have it all figured out and then out there is where people are crazy, but to say, no, no, we are a fellowship of the sexually broken. Right? It's easy to, the words, hey, we're all sinners, just rolls off the tongue. It's, you can say it and, hey, we're all sinners. But can you give a name to the way that we sin? Right, that we're broken in the way that we use our bodies, that we're broken in the ways that we use others' bodies. Even in marriage, we approach our sexuality selfishly to use and not to give. Right? We are a broken people. This is one of the reasons that I'm so excited. Uh, if you look at the back of your bulletin, you'll find an invitation uh, to a sex addiction group that, that meets here in the chapel uh, that started a few weeks ago. It's not a ministry of our church, but we're just delighted to host them. They're a part of a larger uh, 12-step SA group. And I'm, I'm so excited to, to offer this because it's a way of putting in place, a, a way to say, we all need this. Right? We are all broken and searching for answers. And we all have a hard time believing. You know, even as a pastor, I have a hard time believing. I spend as much time as you do in the rest of the world, uh, and in culture, and in media, it is hard to believe that we don't have the right to determine what we do with our bodies in this world, right? Everything around you says that your value as a person is found in fulfilling self, uh, sexual self-expression, that, right? That, that you'll never be happy until you learn to, to be free and to find out who you really are and to pursue it with everything you have. In our culture, sexual self-expression has been lifted up uh, into a kind of a savior. And it's what makes it so very hard to believe and to confess that I am not my own, right? That my body is not my own, that it belongs to the God who made it, that he gets to tell me what I should do with it. It belongs to the God who redeemed me and who laid down his life for it and for me. It belongs to my spouse. Right, that you are not your own, 
But you belong both in body and in soul to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves you and who gave himself for you. Only through that way can we ever know what it is. Only by that grace will we ever learn what it means to be naked and without shame. To have a sexuality, that part of our lives that's so important, that is not cloaked in shame and secrecy and hiding and in guilt. So we're made for intimacy. And then, finally, your marriage is a story about a mission. It's a story about a purpose bigger than just your marriage. Over and over, God describes the gift of Eve to Adam as he was giving him a helper, right? And there's been so much uh, bad teaching around that word, right? Helper in English calls to mind, um, you know, domestic servant often, right? That you're made to cook and to clean and to come alongside and help the man with whatever it is that he wants. That is not what helper means. Sorry, gentlemen. You're welcome, ladies. All right. Uh, that, is, that, is, that is not what helper means. Uh, the word that's translated helper in Hebrew is ezer. Uh, it's a word that's used, it's a Hebrew word that's used 19 times in the Old Testament. 16 of them, it's applied to God himself. Usually in conjunction with him coming to battle to defend his people. Right, so if anything, helper means military ally. It comes to mean the one who comes to bail you out when you can't fight your own battles. It means that side of God that comes in to defend his people, to fight alongside them, that takes their enemies as his enemies and goes into battle with them. And so when God said it's not good, to be man, it's not good for man to be alone, he means it's a battle out there. The chaos and the darkness of this world means that man needs an ally. Right? He doesn't need a servant. He needs an ally, somebody that he can lock arms with in the battle, that they can face the darkness of this world together and to face it and to not back down from it. And so if woman is to be a helper, the question is pressed, to help with what? Well, to help with the only job description we've gotten for Adam so far, to fill the earth, Adam wasn't going to get that done without woman. <laughs> to subdue it and to have dominion. Right? So to come together to create life, to nurture life, and then to push back the chaos and darkness of this world. Marriage finds its sweetest fulfillment when you recognize that you share a mission together. That you're nurturing life. Sometimes in a marriage, it's through the giving of children, nurturing that life up to fullness. Other times it's nurturing the life of Christ in one another, calling out what's best in one another, nurturing the life of your neighborhood and your city, supporting one another in your vocations. We need a shared mission in our marriages. This is why empty nesting uh, can be such a difficult phase in any marriage, right? If getting your children out of the house was the mission, well, congratulations, you accomplished it. And now you're stuck with each other, right? There's not anybody else there. And so you need a mission that's bigger than your marriage, that's bigger than your kids, that finds its hope in the kingdom of God. I'll close with a quote. James Altheus, a Christian counselor, writes, To try to keep love just for us is to kill it slowly. We are not made just for each other. 
We are called to a ministry of love to everyone we meet and in all we do. In marriage, too, Jesus' words hold true. In saving our lives, we lose them. And in losing our lives to others, we drink of life more deeply. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org. 